Production support for Earth Eats comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Which everyone knows cannot grow this far north, being Mediterranean and favoring the rocky, sun-baked soils of Jordan and Sicily. But no one told the fig tree. This week on our show, Fig Trees. Ross Gay shares a poem featuring the opposite of social distancing under a fig tree in Philly. And Bloomington neighbors share tips on raising figs here in the Midwest. That's all coming up, so stay with us. Renee Reed is with us in a way. She's at home, and so am I. But hey, Renee, how's it going? Hi, Kate. We're hanging in there. While the COVID-19 pandemic continues, the federal government is moving forward with suspending and rolling back food and agricultural regulations. Experts say this could have long-term impacts on the country's food system. As the agencies put rules on hold, rules meant to prevent foodborne illnesses and industrial pollution, experts worry that some companies may take advantage of the lull and do less to protect public health and the environment. In mid-March, The Food and Drug Administration announced that it would temporarily suspend routine facility inspections, even though prior to the suspension, the agency would only visit a site once every five to seven years. The inspection suspension comes as many are sounding the alarm about the shortage of personal protective equipment, or PPE, for food workers across the country, putting the food supply at higher risk of exposure to COVID-19 contamination. The Environmental Protection Agency also announced that it would suspend all enforcement of environmental laws during the coronavirus outbreak. This includes the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, which regulates the waste from concentrated animal feeding operations, also known as CAFOs. CAFOs will also benefit from a proposed overhaul of the National Environmental Policy Act, which states the USDA's Farm Service Agency would no longer require an environmental review prior to the approval of loan guarantees for large CAFO operations. Farmers and food systems are reeling from worker shortages and gaps in the supply chain as people around the world cloister in isolation. The U.S. food system has shown signs of collapse as processing plants close their doors and farmers are stuck with billions of dollars worth of unusable product. In Wisconsin, dairy farmers have been forced to flush milk down drains. About a third of the state's dairy products, mostly in the form of cheese, are sold in the shuttered food service industry. In Florida, winter crops sold to restaurants have been left to rot due to lack of buyers. The national fallout could amount to over $1 billion from March to May, according to a National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition report. U.S. farmers rely on hundreds of thousands of Mexican workers who get visas to work seasonal harvests. But consulates in Mexico have been shut down. Labor-intensive crops like strawberries and tree fruits are among the hardest hit by shortages of workers. Farm workers who harvest crops during the pandemic face huge risks working in jobs with few protections or opportunities for social distancing. 
European crops like asparagus in Germany, strawberries in France, and tomatoes in Italy depend on workers from countries like Poland, Romania, and Bulgaria. But stricter borders are limiting movement, and many workers are choosing not to travel to keep rust down. India's food system started unraveling in March as a national three-week lockdown took delivery trucks off the road and scuttled demand. The shutdown left the country's peak harvest season suspended with bumper crops from last year's monsoons rotting on the vine. The country will depend on its abundant stockpiles of staple foods and a $22 billion package to pay for rations for 800 million people. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed. Thanks to Taylor Killo and Chad Bouchard for those stories. The Harvest Public Media Reporting Collective is producing a series of reports on the effects of climate change on the Great Plains. Part 5 in their series centers on Oklahoma. The Chickasaw and Choctaw nations are working with additional partners to prepare for possible drought conditions in the future. For Harvest Public Media, Lindsay Crable Burton reports. Southeastern Oklahoma averages at least 40 inches of rain per year, so its agricultural industry focuses primarily on livestock and timber. But an extended drought in 2011 and 2012 cost Oklahoma's farmers and ranchers more than $2 billion in losses statewide. A citizen of the Choctaw Nation, Billy Smallwood is a fifth-generation rancher and hay baler in Pushmataha County. He says that year he made almost no hay. You know, a hay baler doesn't like to buy hay, but we had to buy hay. Smallwood says farmers and ranchers know they can't control the weather, but that doesn't make it easy to get through the tough times. And there wasn't much he could do about it. Oh, it doesn't matter how many acres of ground you got. When the good Lord don't rain on you, uh, it can't produce. And so you just uh, you just have to make judgment that uh, try to get the most out of what you got. But anticipating the next drought could keep things from getting too bad. That's been the focus of a collaborative effort to create a drought mitigation plan. Kara Burst is the Undersecretary of Outreach and Services for the Chickasaw Nation's Department of Commerce. So in Oklahoma, we're used to droughts. Um, our agriculture folks uh, depend on water for their industry, and so we're, we're kind of used to knowing that there will be impacts here in our state. The Chickasaw Nation, Choctaw Nation, area cities, state and federal agencies, and nonprofits began developing a drought mitigation plan in 2015 for the Arbuckle-Simpson Aquifer. That's the primary source of water for about 150,000 people across southeastern Oklahoma. For some communities, it is the only potable water source. Burst says maintaining it and executing any drought plan will require everyone's participation. We tried to reach out and, and get the most input that we could because we do believe that that's the best way to get an effective plan. Um, if we just sit in the room by ourselves and, you know, put something on paper, then when we take it out to the real world, it may not actually work. They came up with a multi-step plan based on levels of alerts. Five specific triggers can prompt an alert for water-conserving action. The water level at Arbuckle Lake, the aquifer level at a U.S. Geological Survey monitoring well, the flow from Antelope Springs, the Blue River stream flow, and the Palmer Drought Severity Index. The number of triggers set off for any one month's data determines the response level. For example, if just one is tripped, then it is considered an alert. Area farmers would be asked to reduce their potable water use by one-fourth. We may say if the temperature is 100 degrees, you know, do you really need to, to wash your car today? Or, you know, just little things that um, will add up to make a huge overall impact. If all five triggers are set off, ranchers would be encouraged to move their livestock to an area with more water. For other residents, 
Alert level restrictions like the car wash ban would become mandatory in order to reduce water use by 40%. Burst says if all Chickasaw Nation citizens and employees pitch in, they can significantly reduce water use. To date, the plan has not been enacted or revised since it was formally launched in 2017. The region's precipitation totals were above average in both 2018 and 2019, and so far in January and February of this year. Still, Burst says the group is looking to put emergency alternatives in place for communities that depend on just one source for water. We want to put in place all the measures we can now, so it's as easy as flipping a switch um, when and if that occurs. Meanwhile, area ranchers and farmers, including Smallwood, are also using that additional time and moisture to bolster their own drought plans. Smallwood said the 2011-2012 drought was tough, but it taught him valuable lessons. So when the opportunity arises, you better get your hay bale or, uh, or your, you know, your groundwork or whatever you're trying to do because you never know how your seasons are going to change. Even as they enjoy the relatively wet weather, southeastern Oklahomans remain hopeful that when the rain doesn't come, their drought plan will stave off the worst of things. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Lindsay Crable Burton. Find more farm and food stories from the heartland at harvestpublicmedia.org. Growing food. It's on a lot of people's minds right now. We talked about it last week on the show. But even if you didn't tune in, it's hard to miss. Sales have gone up for seed companies. Online gardening workshops are popping up. Locally, we have a Facebook group called B-Town Food and Health Network for folks to share resources and information on growing food. It seems the pandemic crisis we find ourselves in has a lot of people examining food systems and thinking about survival. In my essay last week, I suggested that the benefit of gardening might be found in the present moment rather than as a future goal of self-sufficiency. But when you plant a fruit tree, you can't help but look to the future sometimes way in the future. It usually takes years for a fruit tree to provide. Orchardists are in this for the long haul. Anne Schertz said she hadn't thought too far ahead when she purchased her fig tree six years ago. I bought it from May's Greenhouse. She says it was an impulse buy. But I was inspired by the Bloomington Community Orchard when I saw their fig and how big it had grown and that it was producing figs, I thought, I want one of those. It's a Chicago fig. Chicago hardy, is that just terminology or? I think you're right. Okay. I thought if it could survive in Chicago, then it would probably do pretty well in Bloomington, Indiana. Anne Schertz lives with her husband, Alan Schertz, in the Bryan Park neighborhood in central Bloomington. We used to be neighbors. She's a professional photographer and he works for the city of Bloomington. They have a lot of other interests like baking, building, gardening. You might catch Alan gliding across campus on a longboard in the summer, or the two of them walking their little dog, McGee, in the neighborhood. Oh, and you might say they're foodies. So maybe we could do like a levels check. Just tell me what you had for breakfast. Today we had crepes with gruyere cheese, sautéed mushrooms, spinach, and eggs. It was pretty nice. Yeah, I appreciated it. That is definitely the best. What did you have for breakfast? (laughs) Breakfast that I have ever gotten. (laughs) I invited them on the show to talk about their fig tree. I started by asking them, why figs? I think Anne has always wanted for 
if we're choosing a plant and would lean towards something that would produce food and the fig leaves are beautiful so it's quite pleasant to look at and it is really fun to eat figs. I think also because it seemed a little exotic and like something that I never thought we could grow in Indiana and then once I learned that we could I was really excited about planting something in my yard that I could look forward to picking every year. I know a couple of other people in town with fig trees, but Ann and Allen's is the biggest, and it bears the most fruit. Their house lies along a familiar route through town for me, and the tree is in their side yard, right next to the road, so I pass it almost daily. A few years ago in the winter, I noticed they'd built a sort of circular cage around it, with light wire fencing, and filled it in with dried leaves. Each year, the cage got bigger as the tree grew. Last year, they had it decorated with Christmas lights. Our neighbor bought us Christmas lights to put on it. thought it looked like a cake. So it looks like a big cake at Christmas. I wanted to learn their secret to fig tree success. I stopped by in the fall when they were getting it ready for winter and asked them to describe the process. When I arrived, they'd already set up a circular cage around the tree using stakes and lightweight wire fencing. They had started to fill it in with dried leaves and we're dragging a tarp down the side of the road to a pecan tree on their corner. Sure, we got lucky and we found about somebody who had bagged up about a dozen bags of leaves. My old professor. Giant bags, and so we just sent him an email and asked him (laughs) if if we could have his leaves. That saves time. Yeah, especially when we're kind of in a pinch. It's cold so early this year. They try to get it covered before the first frost, or at least the first hard freeze. This year's first cold snap came early. Many of the leaves hadn't even fallen off the trees yet, so they were happy for any leaves they could get their hands on. They dragged the tarp to the cage and started dumping in the leaves. What is the method here? Do you just uh, dump it in there, or are you trying to get a specific, do you want to make sure it's packed dense, or? I would say packed loose like you can see I have a little void there yeah so I'm not my quality control is quite not up to snuff but uh well you probably want to trap some air in there too yes I think that's right I think the first year we did it we did not use straw maybe year two or three we did use straw at the base and I think that's a good thing I did not use straw at the base of this one so we'll see but again, I am no expert. Just, <laughs> we are just winging it, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, We're pretty loose. It's kind of more like a ritual. Yeah. It's a ritual that seems to work. What I've noticed from other friends' fig trees is that in our climate, certain varieties of fig trees will survive the winter, but they die back quite a bit. And each spring, it takes a while to recover and send out new growth. As a result, the tree doesn't get that much bigger from year to year. That's not the case with Ann and Allen's tree. And so what is the purpose of the of putting putting a cage around it and packing it with leaves? Like what is your intention with that? What do you think it's doing? I guess we're thinking it's insulating it. I don't really know if it is. Like we've never studied it or we don't we don't really know what we're doing but we just keep doing it each year and it keeps producing so well I think I read to do that and that it would help protect it from a hard freeze okay 
So um, it seems to have worked, though. I mean, every year we get about twice as many figs as we did the year before. And this year we got, I think, somewhere in the ballpark of 200 figs. 200 figs, that's that's quite a bit. And so do they come on all at once, or is it just sort of throughout Gradual, the season? Yeah, gradually. Yeah, it usually gradually. starts out with just one or two. You have to really keep looking for them because the fig's so big now <laughs> that you really have to get in there and see where the figs are and... Make sure you don't miss any of those delicious figs on that. So speaking of delicious, what kind of things do you guys like to do with them since you have an abundant harvest? This isn't just like one or two a day. Unfortunately, I think we mainly just eat them raw. I mean, like when they ripen. But we sautéed them. Sautéed them in butter and maple syrup and very lightly because you don't need to use very much because they're already a pretty sweet fruit. So we cut them up, and then we'll eat them with pancakes and waffles or on ice cream. Or even yogurt. We've had like a Mm -hmm. fig yogurt parfait, Mm -hmm. a little granola, a little yogurt, a little figgy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we've taken them uh, to a friend of ours' house, and we've put them on pizza, too, with goat cheese. Oh, yeah. I forgot. (laughs) It's very good. Have you ever preserved them like by making jam or or dried them or anything we haven't gotten to that point where we have so many that we would do that we mostly gobble them down just as they are do you give them away to friends and neighbors by all means we do because we want other people to experience the fig they often have never had a fig Especially a fresh one. Yes, and they or they they thought that like we have neighbors from Israel, and they thought that they could only get them in Israel as far as you know growing them in the vicinity where they lived. So that was exciting to them to know that that was a possibility. Mm-hmm. That it is a nice uh, invitational, like a, I don't know what you call it, like fellowship sharing thing. So it's a it's a nice element. As far as that goes, I think. It's actually happened with people driving by, too, because I think people are curious when we're standing by it, wondering what we're doing, because they don't recognize it as mm-hmm. something that would be bearing fruit. Mm-hmm. So they're curious, and they ask us what we're doing, and we're basically almost getting inside the fig and trying to find the figs in there. So, I think some people have never had a fresh fig, and then... I especially think people don't know what a fig tree looks like. So all of that would mean people would be curious. Absolutely. Although there are some people who think, no, I'm not eating that. It looks weird. (laughs) (laughs) But then they slice it open and And it's it's pink. It's gorgeous on the inside. It looks kind of like a little ugly fruit on the outside, but you open it up and it's pink and beautiful and delicious. Yeah. Yeah, so what does the outside look like? Outside color is initially green and then kind of turns brownish, mm-hmm. almost kind of like a purpley bruised color when they're starting to ripen. Do, do you think anybody's no. picking? Because I know that, that your fig is, it's outside of your backyard fence. Yeah. It's, it's, it very, it's, it's very open to the community. There's many individuals that we've said, by all means, help yourself. But I also think there's kind of like a respect that they're not going to just come and harvest all of them or anything you know what I mean it's just like a you said squirrels what about deer I know that this neighborhood is just overrun with deer sometimes yeah there's a lot of deer but I don't think I've ever seen a deer 
chomping on the fig. Not for the leaves, not for the fruit. Either they don't like figs or they have not discovered them. Yeah. My guess would be the latter. (laughs) They haven't (laughs) discovered them because they will like them. (laughs) I think for me, mostly, it's just nice to have something out in the yard that grows and then I can pick the food and eat it. I don't feel like I'm being that resourceful, but it's just a fun thing to have in my life to be able to do that. I don't know. I guess what I am learning is to try to grow things that grow easily in Indiana. I have tried to grow lots of fruits that don't necessarily do that well in Indiana. And so to find something that does well, it pretty much takes care of itself besides covering it up in the winter. It just really brings me a lot of joy. It's definitely fun. I think the fellowship of the tree has been a highlight for me. Just interacting with neighbors, kids, grown-ups. As is often the case, fruit from their fig tree is more than food. It's a conversation starter, a connector. After a short break, we have a poem from Ross Gay, about the connections that can happen around a fig tree. Stay with us. Production support comes from Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown, at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Ross Gay is a poet and professor of English at Indiana University in Bloomington. His latest release, The Book of Delights, is a collection of essayettes, each focusing on a particular delight he experienced in his everyday life. It's not all hummingbirds, hickories, and rice candy. It gets dark in places. We can only truly know delight by experiencing its opposite, perhaps. Roskay has been featured this year on This American Life, All Things Considered, and Krista Tippett's podcast, On Being. I've noticed in recent weeks, these programs are choosing to re-air their Roskay delight segments. It seems we're looking for some of that bittersweet reflection that Ross's book offers in a time like this. But this week on Earth Eats, 
I asked Ross if he could read from his poetry collection, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. Here's Ross Gay reading, at least six feet away from me, in his garden. To the fig tree on Ninth and Christian. Tumbling through the city in my mind without once looking up, the racket in the lug work, probably rehearsing some stupid thing I said or did, some crime or other. The city, they say, is a lonely place until, yes, the sound of sweeping, and a woman, yes, with a broom beneath which you are now too the canopy of a fig, its arms pulling the September sun to it, and she has a hose, too, and so works hard rinsing and scrubbing the walk, lest some poor sod slip on the silk of a fig and break his hip, and not probably reach over to gobble up the perpetrator. The light catches the veins in her hands when I ask about the tree. They flutter in the air, and she says, Take as much as you can help me, please. So I load my pockets and mouth, and she points to the stepladder against the wall to mean more. But I was without a sack, so my meager plunder would have to suffice. And an old woman whom gravity was pulling into the earth loosed one from a low-slung branch, and its eye wept like hers, which she dabbed with a kerchief as she cleaved the fig with what remained of her teeth. And soon there were eight or nine people gathered beneath the tree, looking into it like a constellation, pointing. Do you see it? And I am tall, and so good for these things. And a bald man even told me so when I grabbed three or four for him, reaching into the giddy throngs of yellow jackets, sugar stone, which he only pointed to, smiling and rubbing his stomach. I mean, he was really rubbing his stomach, like there was a baby in there. It was hot. His head shone while he offered recipes to the group using words which I couldn't understand. And besides, I was a little tipsy on the dance of the velvety heart rolling in my mouth pulling me down and down into the oldest countries of my body, where I ate my first fig from the hand of a man who escaped his country by swimming through the night, and maybe never said more than five words to me at once, but gave me figs. And a man on his way to work hops twice to reach at last his fig, which he smiles at and calls baby. Come here, baby, he says, and blows a kiss to the tree which everyone knows cannot grow this far north, being Mediterranean and favoring the rocky, sun-baked soils of Jordan and Sicily. But no one told the fig tree or the immigrants. There is a way the fig tree grows in groves. It wants, it seems, to hold us. Yes, I am anthropomorphizing, goddammit. I have twice in the last 30 seconds rubbed my sweaty forearm into someone else's sweaty shoulder, gleeful, eating out of each other's hands on Christian Street in Philadelphia, a city like most, which has murdered its own people. This is true. We are feeding each other from a tree, at the corner of Christian and Ninth, strangers maybe never again. That was Ross Gay reading To the Fig Tree on Ninth and Christian from his 2015 release, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening. Stay nourished, stay safe. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, 
Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks to Ann and Alan Schertz and to Ross Gay. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com. Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net.